Have you ever heard the expression, the devil is in the details? Some of it, we've probably all experienced that a little bit, right? You know, you get this flyer in the mail. It says that you can reduce your current cost of your TV and Internet service, right, by 50%. And you call up, you spend an hour on hold, and then they tell you that's only for new customers. It doesn't apply to you, right? And you can't get that new rate. Uh, had, had that happen this week, you know, we, we as a church, we have a, we still have a pretty sizable debt on the building. I mean, I, I would call $850,000 still a sizable debt on the building. Started out at 1.3. We've got to pay down a lot. But right now, our current uh, mortgage uh, has to be commercial mortgage because it, it's the church. It's at 5%. So I some in the paper for 4%, right? So it's like, wow, I mean, that, that'd be $8,500 a year. We'd be saving an interest from the very beginning. It's not like a one-month thing. So, so then you've got reading the fine print and... We're trying to get out of debt as fast as we can, and the fine print is there's a prepayment penalty of 3% in the first year, 3% in the second year, 2% in the third year. So the, the, sometimes the devil is in the details, right? It's reading down to the bottom line and knowing what's there so you don't get stuck. I would also suggest to you that sometimes that there's, there are ways, especially from the Scriptures, that the details are really where we find some of the greatest things of God. The stuff that, you know, is maybe not real easy for us to process. It's a little bit more theoretical concept. But in the details, God shows up in amazing ways. And he communicates who he is, what he's doing, what he's doing in us, what he's done for us. All, he, 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 he presents all of that to us in incredible ways. And, and I think that Christmas is one of those. We're going to start an Advent series today. For those of you who aren't around church a lot, that means we're going to start a Christmas series today. You know, Advent means the, the awaiting, the awaiting of the coming. And, and we're, we're going to start in today on, on a Christmas series. And the, the theme we're going to have for the month leading up to Christmas Eve is, is, is what really matters. And we're going to be talking about presence, not presence. Okay? Uh, you know, and, and so today we're going to be looking about the presence of God. Next week, we're going to be looking at the presence of God within us and in our presence in the world and down the line. But, but today, we want to look at the presence of God. The greatest gift of Christmas to us is the presence of God. You know, there, there's a lot of great stories in the Scriptures related to Christmas, right? Joseph, Mary, the angels, the shepherds, the wise men, the you know, the manger, the, you know, the, the stall, the whole, whole, there's a lot of incredible pieces to it, right? But the story of Christmas is the presence of God. It, when, when the male baby emerges from the womb of his mother and draws that first breath, something starts that's absolutely incredible. You know, the, the, the rest of the stories, which we often focus on, and they have value in themselves, they're kind of like a Mount Wachusett, but, the, but the, the story of the presence of God is the Mount Everest in the story. It is the story. Let me, let me start try to unpack that just a little bit. What is it? I mean, we know from, a, from Matthew chapter 1, the angel shows up to Joseph, right? Joseph is, you know, I don't know. You know, he's... He's got a few doubts about Mary, right? This whole story about her getting pregnant without, 
really being with a man and all that kind of, it sounds a little fishy. God shows up in the form of an angel, says to Joseph, don't worry to take Mary as your wife. What she's telling you is true. What's in her is of me. You take, I want you to be the father of this, and when the child is born, I want you to name it Jesus. Right? And then it goes on and tells us in the Word that this took place, that what had, God had promised through the prophet could take place, that the virgin would be with child, the child would be born, and the child would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Now this is where the details begin to matter. Isn't God always been with us? What, what does Psalm 139 say, right? You know, it talks about how God formed us in the womb, all these kinds of great things. But in the midst of it, it says, where can I go from your presence? Where, where, is there any place on the planet that I can go where you're not present? I could, I could, if I go up to heaven, in other words, if I go to the very top of the mountains, you're there. If I go down to the place of Sheol, the, the place of the dead, assuming the places you can, as far as you can get from God, you're there. If I can go to the, the depths of the sea, the very deepest spot in the ocean, or whether I go to the most remote place on the planet that nobody's ever been before, your presence is there. So what is it about God being with us in the Emmanuel that's so different? This is where the details begin to matter, right? I mean, we've always got the presence of God. He makes the sun come up, the rain come down, all that kind of good stuff. It's on the good and the evil stuff. But what is it about this Male child that enters into the world takes his very first breath, and with that very first breath, something incredible happens. What is it about the presence of the Emmanuel that really matters? Here's, and I want to begin to kind of unpack this a little bit, and, and we're going to do a little heavy sledding. In the fact, the passage of Scripture we're going to read in a few minutes from the book of Hebrews is, is really heavy stuff. I'm hoping you're hungry because it's pretty meaty, you know, so we're going to have to dig in. I'm, I'm going to do my best to try to pull it out for us. But, you know, there, there, there was, a, there was a, a uniqueness to the kind of presence that God had with his creation prior to the fall in Genesis chapter 3. You remember when Adam and Eve violated God's command. In other words, he said, hey, I want you to treat me as God. I give you one strike. Don't eat from this tree. Everything else is good, but from this tree, don't eat. And they decided to do that anyways. They, they said, we want to be our own master. We don't want you to be our master. And the scripture says in verse 8 that in the cool of the day, God came to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve. And they were afraid to be around him because they were naked. Remember, remember that story? Prior to the fall, there, there was a special dimension, a, a, a specificness, a, a tangibleness, a, a, a personalness of the presence of God in the world with his creation. It literally could be described as God going for a walk in the garden with, with his creation at the end of the day. With the fall, that's all broken. I would submit to you that with the first breath that Jesus draws, once he's emerged from the womb, that very first breath, the presence is back. Once again, God is specifically, personally, tangibly present in the world, and he's here for a reason. And with Every single breath 
from that very first one to the last one that he takes on the cross, God is up to something through the presence trying to do something that's incredible. And it's in that activity of God that starts with the presence of God in the world and the Emmanuel that we see the incredible activity of God. So I, I would love for you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2 with me. Hebrews chapter 2. If you have your, a pew Bible, we're on page 1016. If you're using one of your, your own Bible, and I always encourage you to bring your own Bible. I think it's great sometimes to, I can actually remember where passages are on a page when I'm going to look into my own Bible. But if, if you're not familiar where Hebrews is in your own Bible, get to the back of the New Testament over in the book of Revelation. Kind of start working your way backwards from there um, <coughs> towards the front, and you'll go through the, the letters to John and Jude, and then you'll go through First uh, and 2 Peter, then James, and then you'll come to the book of Hebrews. Now, the book of Hebrews is not our world because we don't, we don't live in a Jewish world. And this is really trying to describe how, 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 ju- how superior the activity of God is in Christ over God's activity in the Abrahamic covenant that has so defined the people for so long. And, and I want to look at verses 5 through 18 today of chapter 2. I'm going to go back and unpack this a little bit for us as we go. And, and hopefully in the midst of all of that, we'll understand how it is that God's presence in the world in Christ, that restoration of that physical, specific, personal presence in the world really is, can, should change everything for us. Follow along as I read. I'll go back and, and make some comments afterwards. For, for, he, for he has not subjected to angels... The world to come that we are talking about. That's a reference to what he'd been talking about earlier in chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. But one has somewhere testified, and that is Psalm chapter 8, the psalmist in the 8th psalm that we find in the scriptures. But from Psalm 8 we read, what is, a, what is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him lower than the angels for a short time. The word angels there in the Hebrew is actually the word Elohim, which is a word that's kind of used for gods. You've made, him, you've made man just a little lower than the gods, these special divine creatures that you've created, the angels. Just, you crowned him with glory and honor and subjected everything under his feet. For in subjecting everything to him, He left nothing subject to him. As it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him. But we do see Jesus, made lower than the angels for a short time, so that by God's grace, he might taste death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. For it was fitting in bringing many sons to glory that he, for whom and through all things exist, I told you this is heavy sledding, right? Meaty stuff. Should make the source of their salvation perfect through sufferings. <clears throat> Some of your Bibles might not have the word source. You might have the word pioneer. You might have the word author. Picking up with verse 11. For the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one father. It's a reference to believers and to Christ. We all have one Father. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying, I will proclaim to my brothers 
I will proclaim your name to my brothers. I will sing hymns to you in the congregation. See, that's why you're supposed to sing. All right? The Bible tells you that when you're with the congregation, you're supposed to sing. All right? And uh, I just do that to keep my wife happy, you know, so get a little guilt trip in there. You've got to have a little guilt when you go to church. Anyways. Again, I will trust in him. And again, here I am with the children God gave me. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, he also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. For it is clear that he does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abram's, Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tested and suffered, he's able to help those who are tested. Now, I'm sure you don't have any questions. And this is all crystal clear. and We can just kind of wrap up and go home and beat the Methodist to the restaurant. No, I'm only kidding. Now, that's what they would say in Texas, and it really was a fight to get to the restaurants before the, the rest of the churches let out. Not the places I ate at. I couldn't afford the good ones. So, anyways, there's three pieces to this I really want you to see. The first one really starts with verses 5 through 8, and it's to answer this question. Who is the author of Hebrews, and before him, the psalmist, in Psalm 8, who is he talking about? We often want to read these verses and apply them to Christ, whom is often called the Son of Man in the New Testament. That's a little premature with Psalm chapter 8. Here's what I'd suggest to you. These verses that are quoted from Psalm 8 are a reference to you and I. God, in the ideal, when he drew up the specs, God created you and I to just be just a little teeny bit lower than the angels. And that you and I were supposed to co-rule with God over creation. That's what, how and why and God created us. He said, you know, we, we, he, he crowned, you know, you've been made, you made him, reference to man, all of humanity, just a little lower than the angels for a short time. You crowned him with glory and honor, and you put everything under his feet. The, the, the intent of God, in, as he created man and woman in his image, was for you and I to be co-rulers, co-regents with him over all creation, and for us to have this place at the, the pinnacle of creation where we are just a little bit lower than the angels. That's how God drew up the plan. That's what God's intent was. That's really what we were born for. You know, it's like, it's like God is supposed to be the chairman of the board and we're the CEO. Right? Some countries, they... You know, I, it, they, they have, boy, it took me a, a long time to get my head around this. They not only have a president, but they have a prime minister. I'm like, how do you do that? I mean, we have a president, you know, but we don't have a, you know, and, but in their 
systems. The president is kind of really the, the pinnacle of the government and does all the international relationships and is kind of the face of the country. The prime minister really is responsible for running the everyday operation of the government in the country. They, they rule, lead, govern together. God created us in the garden and you can see this as Adam unpacks chapter 2 and he's naming all the... God created us to be just a little lower than the angels and to be co-rulers with him. And that's, that's the ideal. That's what God has for us. Now, you know, I'd, I'd give you... A, you know, I'm always cautious to kind of move beyond what the Scripture says, but... But, you know, really, as, as I think about this, and, and I'm using the word I think specifically, not God says, but as I think about this, if, if Genesis chapter 3 hadn't happened, if there hadn't been this saying, you know, God, I want to be my own master, you know, and, et cetera, and we moved off in our own direction, if, if chapter 2 had continued and there was this place where we really stayed in the ideal that God had for us, you and I could swim with crocodiles and they'd never touch us. We could sleep with bears and they'd never maul us. We could run with lions and they would never harm us. Because we would be co-rulers. You know, we, we, when, when July 4th comes, it would never rain. Right? It would always be sunny 85 and, and low winds. You know, but just a perfect day to be on the water, right? You know, it would never snow on a Sunday. You know, I mean, that's from a pastor's perspective. It would never snow on a Sunday, you know, because deciding whether to have church or not is one of the worst parts of my job, I got to tell you. You know, I, I'm glad I am not a school principal, you know, or, or a school superintendent. It's bad enough having to do it just on Sundays. You know, but that, that's, that's where God created us. Now, that's the first point. The second point, and you see this emerge at the end of chapter 8, at verse 8, see it come out a little bit later in verse 15. But at the end of verse 8, as the author of Hebrews is rolling through, it says, yes, we were designed, we were created to live in this ideal place where we're just slightly lower than the angels, co-rulers with God, everything's under us, the world is there to be about us. But at the end of verse 8, it says, but as it is, we do not yet see everything subjected to him says, but the reality is, that's not the way it's working. Everything's supposed to be subjected to us, but it ain't, you know? And there's, there's this frustration that the actual is not the real. I mean, the actual is not the ideal. You know, that, that even though the world is supposed to be subjected to us, that's not the way it's working, okay? Um, I gave the first service this illustration. I mean, if when just a glaring example to me that the world is not in subjection to, the, the subjection to us the way it's supposed to be, right, is that when we moved into the building, we spent hours raking the entire lot almost. I mean, by hand, we went through and raked all the rocks along the roadway, out by the sign, all the way around the building. Then we planted grass seed. Hundreds of dollars of grass seed. Now, listen, this is a church property, right? God's supposed to bless it. The only thing that grew were weeds. That's it, just weeds. Except out in the front of the building where the parking lot meets the curbing, plenty of grass grew out of the crack right in there. 
You know, it's just, it's just glaring evidence that it's just not the way it's supposed to be. And you guys just have to go back and replay the calendar of this past week, right? You just look through your schedule, think about the things that you say, you know what, the ideal is not what's happening in my life. I, I, th- th- that sense of control, that sense of authority, that sense of privilege, that sense of position, it's just not there. And there's this frustration of, that the actuality is not anywhere close to the intent or the ideal. Now, here's the message of the Emmanuel, God's presence with us, is that Jesus has come to make it a way to go from the actual back to the ideal. God is in the details. Jesus came present among us so that he can actually move us from the actual back to the ideal where God created us. Let me point out a few things to you from this text. How how does he do that? Well, the scripture says he's he's the source or the author of our salvation. Right? A couple ways he did that. We'll look at verse 14. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, all of us are wearing skin, all of us have Blood pulsing through our veins. Some of this time of year, like me, I, my feet get cold fast. I, I can tell that the blood is not flowing through my feet as the way it's supposed to, at least not the way it used to, right, you know? And, but we, we are flesh and blood, and because you and I are flesh and blood, Jesus identified with us. He became one of us. Not only fully God, but fully man, he became one of us, and he shared in these, it says, that so through his death, he may destroy the one holding the power of death. He holds it down. And this death has, has been really kind of like a, a weight holding us down in the actual and not releasing us to God's ideal. And, and this, this idea of fear of death that he talks about, there's this, uh, there's this concept that, that Christ came in and became one of us, and through his death, he conquered the power of death, which had been the sense of fear, and there was a sense of uncontrollableness, the sense of finality, the sense of didn't know where we were transitioning to, the next world, and et cetera. I mean, if death was always something that happened to a 95-year-old who had lived a good life, had great health right up to the end, and it went really quickly, death would kind of feel a little different to us, right? But when death strikes in, like last year, right around this time, I was doing the funeral for an 18-year-old girl who got killed in a one-car accident, while they're off on their way to go to drill for the National Guard out in Springfield. And, and there's just something about that that just, it just feels wrong, right? And, 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 it, and it's not a respecter of the rich or the poor or the, the famous or whatever. I mean, Steve Jobs, this guy who created an incredible country, company, right? Great ideas, you know, with Apple. Died at the age of 56 from cancer. It doesn't matter how bright you are, how brilliant you are, how rich you are, how many resources you got. It, it, death snuck and just took them. You know, um, you think it just, well, you know, maybe he wasn't a believer, that kind of stuff. You know, Cecil Day was the guy who started the Day's End, right? Very dedicated Christian, active Baptist, li- li- literally just got to a place where his corporation was taken off. Is literally pouring hundreds of thousands of dollars of corporate profit into kingdom work. He died at the age of 44. Because he started this new company. Death is just that. 
Christ steps in. He takes on what we live in, this very place where death seems to have this hold over us, and he pioneers, he authors, he leads this new way through that identity. You pick up in verse 17 the same idea of identifying with us. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way from that very first breath in the manger to that last gasp on the cross. He had to be like us in every way, present with us, so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. So that he could step into a place and do for us where he could guide us from the place where there's the actual back to the ideal. And he does that by making propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, we've talked about this word a little bit in recent times, propitiation. Probably not something you use regularly in your conversations. You know, if, if, if you've used the word propitiation, you know, Outside of your life group in the last month, I'll give you $10 out in the lobby, right? You know, it's just not something we do. What does this word mean, you know? And it's related to the way that God has restored us into relationship to him. And it has to do with the sense of emotion, the sense of connection. And here's the way I would describe it. Jesus, in this role, as he identifies with us, steps in as this high priest between us and God. He he serves as the, the, the source of our salvation, the author of our salvation. He's the means of it. He's the sacrifice that pays all the price, and that comes out earlier in the chapter. But in this particular moment, what it's talking about is that, you know, and here's, here's how I would describe it to you is, you know, sometimes in, in, in over the course of my ministry, on several occasions I've had to work with couples where there's been infidelity in a relationship. Husband and wife, one, one, one spouse or the other is unfaithful to their, to their spouse, and there's just a tremendous break. And and the first step for them is to rebuild trust, right? The, the offending spouse has to really prove that they are trustworthy again. I got to tell you that sometimes six months, a year, two years into that journey, they're just getting to that place. But that's still not propitiation. Propitiation is when they finally get to a place where all the affection, the romance, the passion, the, the, just the, the heart throb for one another, it all returns. I got to tell you, that doesn't always just return when there's just the trust levels there. It's when you're actually going back to having that passion for one another, where the offended spouse, if I can use that terminology, has all the same sense of, 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 of thrill and passion and, and connection. That's what it means to be propitiated. When Christ stepped into this gap, identified with us, offered himself out up in this place as this high priest, he puts us into a position where God looks at us and he sees us with this gleam in his eye and a passion in his heart that he's just eager for us to get back to the place that he designed us for in the very first So he identifies with us. The other way that he plays this role is that he suffers. He suffers. You see, he is somehow perfected, going back to verse <clears throat> 10, for it was fitting in bringing many sons to glory, that's you and I, that he, reference to Jesus, for whom and through all things exist, should make the source, the author, in other words, the means of their salvation, perfect through sufferings. That it was in his life, in flesh and blood, and in his death on the cross, and his victory, all of that that consumes not only his identification with us, but then his is experiencing the wrath of God towards sin, that all of that wrapped up together, somehow or another perfected Christ to be the means that could lead us from the actual back to the ideal. Now, what does this word perfect mean? And, you know, it, it doesn't mean that it's perfect in the sense of unblemished, though certainly Christ was unblemished. But it means perfect that it was 
perfectly suited, perfectly equipped to do the task for which it was assigned. Jesus' sufferings, in other words, through his identification with us and being tested and tempted and all that kind of stuff you see like in verse 18, and his suffering, the judgment, the wrath of God against sin, that all of that combined made him perfectly suited, 100% able to be the one who establishes the way for us to get from the actual back to the ideal. Let me give you an example. A lot of you are like me, right? You wear glasses. You know, these glasses have been pretty good because the little screw in the corner has never really come loose. Any of you ever had the kind of the screw in the corner of your glasses where it hinge comes loose, right? So you've got to tighten it up. So, so you get a screwdriver. You, you think that's a good fit? Think this is perfectly suited to do the job? I mean, it's perfectly suited for some jobs, right? I used it the other day to dig out some holes so I could put in some snow sticks around my yard. You banged it in. It was perfectly suited for that. The other one I used first broke, so I had to get it this way. It was perfectly suited to do that task, right? That, that doesn't fit, but how about this one? Actually, this came out of a gift that my wife got at a, one of our Life Group Yankee swaps, and it was, a, it was a hammer with flowers painted all over it. And in the handle of it, there were these little screwdrivers that kept coming out, and probably actually this one in here is probably just a little better suited to do your glasses, right? And it actually is a perfect fit. Suffering, the suffering. The suffering that Jesus experienced by being present with us in flesh and blood in the world, and as he really incarnated all of us on the cross and suffered the wrath of God, he made him perfectly suited to be the one who can lead us from the, from the actual back to the ideal. And when he does that, he sanctifies us. He sets us apart. God again. And you see that word here. There's an incredible message in here. This isn't just God kind of being present and we can't get away from him and that kind of stuff. This is God showing up in our world for you and I as one of us so that he can take us from where we're at back to where he's always wanted us to be. And that's why we can be called the children of God and we're co-rulers with Christ. And eternal life starts now for us. That's what really matters, is the presence of Christ. The gift of Christmas isn't the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh that the Magi did. It's not, all kind of, it's not family. If I hear one more time somebody say, Christmas is about family, I, I'm going to puke, you know. Not a bad thing, you know. I'm glad my family comes. I'm glad my family leaves. But, you know, it, it, Christmas is not about faith. It's about the presence of God in the world to change that which we messed up and continue to mess up so that we can actually experience the ideal that God's always wanted for us. So it leads me to a couple questions for us today. You know, I, I think sometimes the very best preaching doesn't give us the answers. It really kind of creates questions for us. So that you can go out and hear, you can, when you leave today, you can have your own dialogue with God about the stuff that you've heard. 
And that's not me trying to slip out of my job and trying to make the message clear and creating all kinds of questions. Et you know, but there's a couple things I think it's worth you thinking about. The very first thing is, have you really ever responded or accepted the gift of God's presence? Have you let Christ step into your life as a source of your salvation and lead you from the actual to the ideal? That's the first question. Second question that really speaks to me is for those of us who know the story, who know the gift, are we really sharing the gift? Are we really sharing the gift with others? The presence, the impact of the presence of God on others. But here's the one that's probably where most of us are going to spend our time. Is that we really live in the gift. If you're in Christ and he's led you from the actual back to the ideal, are, are you living the gift? Now, I, I realize there's part of creation, as the author of Hebrews says, there's parts of creation that are not subjected to us. I, I understand that. There, there's parts of this restoration of the ideal that's not going to happen until Christ's return. There's things in our circumstances that are outside of our control. All kind of, I, I understand all of that. But there are aspects that are under our control. In our relationships and in our attitudes and in our priorities and in our principles and our convictions, and are we experiencing the gift of living eternity, the ideal now? As joint heirs with Christ, co-rulers for all of eternity, are we experiencing living out the gift that God has given us through his presence in Jesus Christ? Let's pray together, and then we'll conclude our service. God, thanks for the gift, the gift of your presence. You promised it. You kept your promise. You gave it as you gave yourself to us and your son, Jesus Christ. God, this Christmas, let us accept the gift. The gift of your presence and what it means in this world and for the next. God, help us to share the gift in powerful, tangible, real ways. God, help us to live the gift. That spirit of victory that sense of power, position, and joy. God, do it as we give you thanks for the gift of your presence in the Emmanuel, in whose name we pray.